If you were here last week, and if you haven't listened to the talk, it's up on our website. Um, Lenny LaGuardia, I cannot multitask. I haven't set this password up so I can do both things at the same time. Lenny LaGuardia from IHOP Kansas City was here. And uh, he, he, was, he was a little bit all over the place. The poor guy was, was having to go to an to, uh, Armenian church in Glendale and, and had to, we found out during worship, the time frame changed. And then he gave his Bible away. And so his notes, half his notes were in there. So, so the, the poor guy was a little all over the map. But he gave us, I believe, one of the most critical, timely words. And I want to briefly go over some of the highlights of that and then tie that into some sort of message for us. Uh, and then we're going to worship communion as we close today. Um, but the first thing um, he said was this. Over this place, frontier, is a spiritual government, the goodness of the Lord, and that you are to build a culture, not a formula. You uh, that have come into this place need to understand that it's way more important to not just connect to a value, but to connect to a culture. And if you know us, you know that we've really gone after building a culture and, and not simply abiding by just values or just formulas, as well as as good as those things can be at times. He said uh, Psalm 78 was a scripture that, that came to him for us, and he said that has spiritual government in it. And, and I even want to ask the question, what does that spiritual government look like? And I, I think we need to remember even our mission vision statement. And I want to read a piece of that. It's up on our website if you ever forget it or need to be reminded of it. Um, and, but first, I, I just want to, to give this aspect of spiritual government. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Can we all agree with that? <laughs> and he took these keys of authority, that dominion, those dominion keys... And, and he waved them in front of the devil, so to speak, when he came. As, as kind of saying, like, devil, you think, remember when he was tempted by the devil in Luke 4? He's, he's like, I'm not going to be tempted just by you saying that there's a shortcut to what I'm here to do. I'm not going to let you run the agenda. And he essentially, he comes in and he shows this is the way that the king and the keys of the kingdom look. And his message then becomes about the kingdom element. And he talks about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. I didn't really understand Jesus' message of the kingdom uh, until I was about almost 30 years old. The kingdom mandate that Jesus spoke of and that he carries always has in it this concept of family. We talk about family until you're probably sick of it. And we, we make noises that sound like family until you're definitely sick of it, right? <laughs> you can't get away of it from it. We have to embrace that as our identity. But regardless of whether your children are the ones causing the, the soundtrack of our lives or not, we are a part of a family, and you can't get outside the realm of the theology of Jesus speaking of kingdom without a concept of family. The father, the son, sons and daughters, going to a wedding. All of human history is given in the context of family. And so he then gave us this, this verse, Malachi 4, 4 to 6, and uh, Lenny did last week. And I'll just read that really quickly, Malachi 4, 4 to 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before it comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land and with a decree of utter destruction." 
Yeah, so we see that all of human and biblical history at this point culminates with this language of hearts, children, and parents. If you get nothing else from this, I want us to get that we are pursuing what it means on earth to carry family that looks like heaven on earth. We talk about a city that's orphaned. So many people come to, to Pasadena, L.A. and SoCal to pursue dreams that weren't believed in by anyone. When you are the only person that believes in your dream, you are orphaned. You have an orphan spirit. It's impossible not to carry that. And you don't have to just go into the industry, but many of you have felt that element at some point in your life. And the answer for the orphan spirit is to come into the family of God. And when we pursue family, we're pursuing a culture and an environment and an atmosphere and a community that ushers people into a realm that allows them to be known and to have a new identity spoken over them and placed upon them. That was the ministry of Jesus. And so God is raising up spiritual mothers and fathers. That was, that was the word that he gave us. And I want to, uh, where did I put that? I want to go back to our vision statement. Uh, our vision statement on our website says this. We're a people who've been utterly transformed by Jesus. We want to keep that concept central. We owe the world a message that's as good as he is. The, the goodness of God might be the cornerstone of all theology. We believe the heart of God is to transform the world through a family of sons and daughters demonstrating what he's like, releasing the realities of heaven here on earth till heaven and earth unite as one. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's out of Romans 8. When, when Paul spoke in Romans 8 about all of creation eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God, what he's saying there is that the fullness of time, human history coming to its climax, is only going to happen through God's divine ordered mandate that this will happen when those who worship me by choice at my invitation, because he pursues us, reveal what he's like and destroy the works of darkness by partnering with him. That's how he's chosen to do things. And he's coming back for a really incredible wedding where heaven and earth unite as one. That's incredible. Now, these things are kind of lofty, and, and, and depending on what kind of brain you love to use, uh, I think sometimes those of us that, that really cater towards the type of brain that I'm talking about now are like, oh, filled up, I can go in many different directions, and it's all wonderful, and oh, it's like dreaming with God, and, and then the rest of you are like, okay, well, so what does that mean? And what does anything ever really mean until it's, you know, something that we can hold on to and say, this is where we're going? And I, I don't know if I have perfect answers for that, but I, I think what I want to do this morning is to kind of take some of those elements and, and start the process uh, out of Scripture. So, so going back a little bit to, to fully culminate what Lenny talked about, I want us to remember who we are, which he didn't know. He doesn't know some of the stuff we've been kind of pursuing uh, at being sons and daughters, bringing heaven to earth. And, and he said these things about us. He said, go, go after asking these four questions. How now shall we lead? How now shall we teach? How now shall we parent? And what song shall they sing? Aren't those incredible questions? I, and he said, these are your questions. 
And he said, our DNA at Frontier will be known as the people who are able to forgive each other. And our DNA is going to surround leadership, content, family, and worship. Leadership, content, family, and worship. And I don't think he had time. And what he was trying to do was tie it back to those questions. He didn't have time to do it. And maybe you can see what he was doing here. Leadership, how now shall we lead? Content, what now shall we teach? Family, how now shall we parent? Not just parents with little ones. I still need to be parented. I still need a father-mother voice in my life. Every single one of us have to ask the question, how shall we parent, regardless of your age or demographic or whatever else it is? And I think the fact that we're bombarded with familial things forces us to take hold of that mandate. How now shall we lead? Leadership. How now shall we teach? Content. How now shall we parent? Family. What song shall they sing? Worship. So I invite you to pursue those questions with us in this fresh season, together. And then he, he culminated in his prayer for us, uh, Luke 18, which is where we're going to land on right now. And, and he prayed this prayer, the same prayer that he prayed over himself when he stepped in to taking over a, an equipping center of little children with a staff that was completely ill-equipped to do so. And he prayed for the emotions that Jesus had when he told his disciples to let the children come to him. Let them come. So that's, that is what I want to culminate with today. And then the topic that I want us to get out of Luke 18 is, is simply asking this question, what's in an age? What's in an age? You know, my kids talk about age all the time. They argue about, I mean, they know how old they are. They're two, five, seven, and nine. And I would get that right all the time if it wouldn't constantly be changing. These <laughs> little jerks are constantly changing their ages without asking my permission. I don't mind the boys. The little girls, though, I pray over them at night. Stop growing. Do not get any older. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing how big a deal age is to a child. They know what age they can do the next big thing, right? And they're, they're really excited about it. And they know, and they keep reminding me. As soon as I tell them, when you're this age, you can do this, and they They'll remind me whether that's you can ride this ride when you're this age or you can have this car never. But, <laughs> but they, they know their ages and they're not ashamed about it. We're still obsessed with age. How many times this week did you have to sign up based on your age for something? Or, or how many discounts did you get because of your age? Or did you notice like 55 some places is like considered elderly and you get a discount? It's amazing. I'm like, you're getting, getting closer. <laughs> and then it won't feel so cool, I bet. Yeah. Do you, any, of, any of you that are over 55, was it like, like super disappointing now that you were like a senior citizen? Or were you excited about it? Does anyone want to admit it? Okay, no, fine. It's a, glory years. Glory years. That's true. So, so the reality is we, you know, we're trying to wash age off our faces with, with all kinds of different kind of age-defying things. We're really good at that in L.A. Sometimes a shot can do it for you. We, we, we can do it with physical weights. We, we turn back the test of time. But then we're trying to get wiser and older. Those, those going into professions are trying to look older, dress older, dress wiser, dress apart. Our age, what we carry, carries significance. We're obsessed with it. Probably for good reason, but that has nothing to do with what Jesus talks about in Luke 18. 
<laughs> so, I thought I was there. I'm not. Um, just jump into the... I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously, if you were wondering. But there's several parables in this, in this passage. Um, in fact, I'll tell you what they are really quickly. There's the parable of the, the widow uh, and the tax collector. It's actually supposed to be seen in one. If, if you're looking in your Bibles, there's the parable of the persistent widow, then the Pharisee and the tax collector, then this little section that says, let the children come, which is the, the thing I just quoted. And then the rich ruler... It goes on to saying Jesus for telling his death a third time and then that he heals a blind beggar. It's probably better to squeeze these into three different pockets. And it's really important that, that you read the whole chapter to understand everything that Jesus was doing. Why, you might ask. Well, if you're like me, I remember reading and learning these passages, but I, te- I tend to like look at them by themselves and not in their broader context. Has anyone else done that before? Well... That's why I'm going to fly through this, because I'm obsessed with looking at the full context. And it's really beautiful. What happens in the first part of Luke 18 is this parable about uh, praying and not losing heart. And it says, in a certain city, there was a judge who was a terrible judge. He was a terrible person. And this widow kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And basically, the judge says... Though I neither fear God nor respect man, in other words, I'm a crummy human being, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'm going to give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God, God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he, will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What is he saying there? He's saying essentially this. Terrible, evil judge can still give justice. How much more can your amazingly good, just Heavenly Father give you justice? And you're really worried about that. But here's what you should be worrying about. When the Son of Man comes, will he even find one that has any faith? So he's acknowledging where their hearts are at. They're seeking justice as a people that are oppressed. I think we can find, if we try hard enough, we as Americans can gloss over that, like, oh, we've never been oppressed. We're Americans. Oppression is, you can find oppression on earth easier than any time in human history. So just pause a moment and think about the oppressed. There's never been a moment in human history where Jesus speaking to oppression is not relevant, even to those who are not oppressed, because we can then look to set captives free in any way we possibly can, spiritually, physically, what have you. It doesn't matter. It's both. And he says this, but will I find faith? So there's something about the issue of faith with the heart of justice that I think we need to start to pursue. And then it's not meant to stop there. It's meant to continue. It says he also told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he talks about this Pharisee and this tax collector, where this Pharisee would pray. This is in verse uh, 10, 11, 12. And he he basically, he'd fast twice a week. He gave gave all his tithes. And then he basically would thank God. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, and especially not like this tax collector. The tax collector then prays, and he says this. He stands, well, he doesn't say it first. He's, he stands far off. He would not even lift up his hot, which tells you what? He struggled with shame. 
He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this. Uh, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee, whose name is not mentioned now. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus then says, talking in the concept of law in the courts, what is justification? What is vindication? The, the Jews were kind of obsessed with justification, vindication, and I want to re- read you just a, a brief uh, aspect. Paul talks a lot about justification in his letters, but vindication or justification, whatever term you want to use, uh, we see it in a lot in Paul, but hardly in the Gospels, but it's at the heart of Jesus' message. It means exactly this, that the judge finds one's favor at the end of the case. That's it. And God the Father is, is when he's seen here as judge, you're meant to see him as someone who's going to find favor in you. Not because of all the good stuff, but because of humility. And recognizing that he gives mercy. You have to recognize what he's like. You have to recognize what you're like, but also what he's like. That's the context of the children coming to him. Now they were bringing infants to him that he might touch them. They weren't bringing the infants to where they usually would bring infants at this time of year at the atonement. They're bringing them to Jesus. And the disciples saw it and said, this is all wrong. But he rebukes them and he says, let them come to me. A new way of blessing the children. Don't hinder them. For this kingdom message that I've been speaking to you, they get it. Why? Children receive gifts really easily. We suck at it. That's really the message today. Children receive gifts really easily. (laughs) We suck at it. If you can learn to receive the gifts that your father desperately wants to give you, you see the kingdom. The people that were closest with him were blinded. They were starting to get it. Their spirits got it. He could offend them and they didn't go. The, the closest disciples, other people left. But there was still this element where they, they didn't get it. They were struggling. And, and, and before we get to that part where they struggled, Jesus talks about, well, he has this exchange with this rich ruler. This rich ruler would have been right there when he saw the children coming to receive for free. And he's trying to say, this this message of the kingdom, I'm trying to get into your DNA. This concept that I'm trying to, 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 to make a portal between heaven and earth through you. The children, you have to see how they get it. You have to see how they receive my gifts. Now, if the Pharisee wasn't a good enough example, now let's take a rich young ruler who everyone thought was the stuff. He'd done all the right things, and he comes asking some pretty good questions. He calls Jesus a good teacher. There's more to that than just that. But he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus says. No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. 
Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've done an amazing job at, Jesus. And he said, one thing you still lack, sell everything, give it to the poor, <coughs> follow me. So you'll have treasure in heaven. And when he said this, he was very sad because he was really rich. And then, of course, is the whole, like, more difficult for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for the rich to inherit the kingdom. It's not about being rich being bad. In fact, we've, because of things like this, we've downplayed prosperity, true prosperity. We even have a really bad phrase like prosperity gospel, which is a bad gospel. But prosperity is a true, good, right, whole biblical term that the people of God are meant to walk into. It, you, heaven is not lacking of prosperity. But we cannot demonstrate heaven on earth without the realm of heaven's prosperity. The problem is when it's a distortion. And so this rich young ruler basically can't follow him. Why? Because he thought he could earn by his works what Jesus said you get for free. Freely you receive, freely give. He couldn't freely receive or give. He actually wasn't even close. It wasn't just receive. It, he couldn't give or receive. Meaning this guy was a complete stopgap. There was no river of life flowing through him, around him, on him. He was a complete dead desert. He couldn't receive or give. Many of you are just struggling with one or the other. This should give you a lot of hope. You're halfway there. If you're struggling to receive, you're halfway there. If you're struggling to give, you're halfway there because maybe you're better at receiving. It's more blessed to receive than to give. Anyway, right? So, so then, then, then they ask this question, who can be saved? Verse 26. And he says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. In other words, you need to tr stop trying to make this possible. The children get it now. They get it right now. Some of us still don't get it right now. Everything that we need, we have right now, just like a child receiving from Jesus, everything. Say this with me. Everything I need, everything I need, I have right now. I think even when you say that, whatever needs to be worked on in your spirit just kind of gets drawn to the surface, right? And it's okay. Take a deep breath. You don't have to work on it all right this second, but at least now you know what it is. Okay, so finishing up this chapter. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, there is no one who has left house or brother, parents or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He's saying to this, to this crowd, to these people that are peering in, he's messed up their brains, and he's saying, this eternal life, this kingdom that I'm talking about, that these children get, you're going to receive many times over. I'm not trying to screw this guy off by telling him to give everything away. I'm trying to show him how to, how to receive what he's trying to earn. 
And then he takes the 12. And taking them, he said, See, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. And everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they'll kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. If anyone was wondering how the disciples missed what happened during the death and resurrection of Jesus, when I read this, I'm literally dumbfounded at how they missed it. How can, they, how can he say this to them, and they're still surprised when he rises from the dead? But they understood none of these things, saying, uh, they, these, this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. The immediate next verses is about what? Them being blind. They could not see what Jesus was trying to tell them of what he was doing. So Luke enters this passage about this blind man who was sitting by the roadside. And Jesus comes up to him. What do you want me to do for you? Which is a question he's asked many times over to many other blind beggars. Has any other blind beggar at this point ever actually asked for his sight? I don't think so. I could be wrong about that. Here's how Jesus knew he was going to ask for the right thing. Because he, t- he said, Son of David, have mercy on me, which, which means he understood that in Jesus, Jesus fulfilled all of the law and the prophets, the Son of David. And so in that statement, in that title that he gave Jesus, Jesus felt the faith. And so then he asked him the question, what do you want me to do? Knowing that he wouldn't ask for money like every other beggar. He wouldn't ask for anything else that he might ask a successful rabbi and prophet. He asks for his sight, which for most, if you remember the guy at the pool of Bethesda, that was a big question for him. Did he really want to be made well? This guy did because he had a little bit of faith to put in Jesus. And it's really not even about him. It's about what kind of faith will there be one when the Son of Man returns? And Jesus is saying, I'll take the faith of the blind beggar. Because right now, he sees and you don't. That's the message to the disciples. Right now, he sees and you don't. And immediately, the man recovers his sight and he follows him. He got everything at that moment. He received like a child, he received the gift. And all Jesus is trying to say is, receive for free the gift. Children and beggars, they know how to receive. This is the key to the kingdom. Receive like a child or a beggar. We can all say that. We, we can all posture ourselves in that way. You need nothing to do that. Nothing. Everything we have, we have. And everything we need, everything we need, we have now. Right now. I want to close with this. I quote Tom Wright a lot because he's one of my favorite theologians that gets the concept of the kingdom. And I want that theology to be embedded into our DNA. And here's what he says um, on, 
especially on the, the, the rich young ruler and the children coming to Jesus. He says this, Luke has given us Jesus' lessons on humility and gratitude. He's given us two parables about God's vindication of his people, both in the future and also for those with humble and penitent faith in the present. He now builds on both of these, still leading us towards Jerusalem, and speaks here of the extraordinary challenge of entering God's kingdom and sharing the life of the age to come. What's in an age? Jesus was putting into operation that for which most Jews had longed, God's kingdom, God's sovereign saving power operating in a new way for the benefit of the whole world. Israel always believed that. They always knew that was their purpose. This meant that already, though, in the present, the period of time they spoke of as the age to come was now breaking in, in the present. It would come fully in the future when all evil had been done away with, and then those who belonged to it would share the life of the coming age. Because this word for age here is often translated eternal, as in eternal life, the phrase eternal life has regularly been used to describe this life. For many today, this simply means an existence going on and on forever. How many of you have thought that and been taught that? Eternal life means that I get to go on and on and live forever and never die and go up to heaven and all that good stuff. This may or may not be desirable for everybody, and this certainly isn't necessarily the emphasis that Jesus has here. In any case, it doesn't catch the flavor, the sheer excitement of the original voice that is meant to be in this text. In God's new age, so the Jews believed, everything will be new, fresh, and free from corruption, decay, evil, bitterness, pain, fear, and death. And that's just the beginning. There will be new possibilities, new opportunities, new joys, and new delights. Heaven and earth will be joined together as one. God and his children will live with each other. That's the state of things being that we are longing for. It would, be a, it would come about when God finally ruled the world with his saving power. And this is what Jesus was bringing in the present. Evil, death, and light breaking in. Jesus himself had yet to face the full force of the powers of the old age. But where he was and where people with humble and penitent trust accepted that God's kingdom was active and through him, there the life of this new age began to be seen. Sometimes by a blind beggar or a woman with oil or the boy with some fish. That's why the rich ruler became so sad. In order to inherit the life of the new age, he had to abandon the values. Remember last week, Lenny said, values govern your heart. And I thought it was interesting. He said that this rich young ruler was, was meant to abandon the values of the old and trust himself totally to the new. Like a diver throwing himself into the water, he couldn't seriously be seeking for the new age if he couldn't abandon the symbols of the old age. The true wealth is to be found here in this heavenly dimension. Treasure in heaven doesn't simply mean the sort of treasure you possess after you die, but treasure that's kept safe in God's storehouse until the time when heaven and earth are brought into their intended unity. And I close with this. Already, even in the present time, this new age breaks into our sad old world. Within the life of Christian fellowship, there are new homes, new families, new possibilities that open up for those 
who leave behind the old ways. The church is called in every age to be that sort of community, a living example of the age to come. If I could have the worship team come up.